Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We're continuing our sermon series through the book of Romans. We're calling this series Good News About God's Grace. And today we're going to be looking at verses 9 to 20. Romans 3 verses 9 to 20. Do you ever ask yourself, what's wrong with the world? You know, most of the time we're busy going about our lives. We don't, we don't spend a ton of our time asking all these existential questions, but then every once in a while you slow down and you start to give it some thought. And it can be really unsettling as you think about the world. I mean, just take the, the news headlines from the past week, um, just three of them. For example, um, deadliest Russian attack in months on Ukraine cities kills at least 25. Um, Ex-UCLA campus gynecologist James Heaps sentenced for 11 years for sexually abusing patients. And then mother and her boyfriend sentenced to life for murder of 10-year-old, the the woman's own son. And that's just a small selection, and that's just one week. And there's nothing abnormal about these headlines. This kind of stuff is just day in, day out. Um, something is wrong with the world. G.K. Chesterton, some of you know who he is, um, Christian intellectual from the early 20th century. There's a story about him that, uh, that goes like this. Uh, the Times newspaper in London posed a question to its readers, what's wrong with the world today? And according to the story, Chesterton wrote back with just a very simple reply, four words, dear sirs, I am. And it's those, those four simple little words, dear sirs, I am, I, really those last two, I am, those words summarize the message of our passage today. The problem with the world is the problem of the human heart. Uh, the, the problem with the world is not simply out there. You know, the, the wrong parties in power, um, lack of education, poverty, loss of traditional values, and, and the list could go on. Uh, we are the problem. You are the problem. I am the problem. The, the rest of our fellow human beings are the problem. Uh, we're not just outside observers of what is wrong with the world. I mean, we're, we're in it. We're co-conspirators. Uh, the problem with the world is the problem of the human heart. And we've been listening to Paul now for a few weeks make this argument in the book of Romans. He's been telling us that human sin is is the problem with the world. And in chapter 1, he indicted the Gentiles as idolaters. They've failed to worship and serve the Creator. And as a result, they've plunged headlong into all kinds of wickedness. Uh, Chapter 2, he indicts his fellow Jews they, they worship the true God, they have God's law, but they don't keep it. And now, here in um, chapter 3, he's going to wrap up the argument. This is the big conclusion to the first section of Romans, the big conclusion before he moves on to the solution for the problem of human sin. So, let me read our passage for us today, Romans chapter 3. Verses 9 through 20, you can find that on page 940 in the, in the church Bibles if you want to follow along there. This is God's Word. 
What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is God's word. Let me pray and ask for his help. Our Father, this is a hard message to receive. We pray that you would help us to hear it rightly. We ask that you would work in us today, Lord, that we might better understand our sin and and out of that better understand the grace of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, here's where we're going today. Um, We are in, here in this passage, we're in God's courtroom. Paul uses a lot of legal language here, language drawn from the ancient uh, law court. If this was a TV legal drama, it would unfold in three scenes. Uh, Number one, the, the charge. What's the accusation? What are we on trial for? So number one, the charge. Number two, the evidence. Uh, it's one thing to make a charge. The prosecutor has to prove that prove the charge, show that we're guilty. So number two, the evidence. And then the third and final part, the verdict. How does the judge rule, innocent or guilty? So first, the, the charge. Uh, you, you can see it there in verse 9. Uh, we're in God's courtroom. Humanity is on trial Um, You and I are sitting at the defendant's table, and and we want to know, what's the accusation? And you can see it there, verse 9, all are under sin. All are under sin. All, the the whole world, every single person. And of course, in in Paul's context, he's emphasizing Jews and Gentiles, the, the biggest social division of his day. He's saying all, meaning it's a humanity wide problem. All are under sin, he charges. Meaning all are sinners. All commit sins. All are guilty before God and deserving of judgment and condemnation. So this is the charge that that you and I and every single one of us are under sin. Now, remember from last week, Paul's been carrying on this conversation with an imaginary a dialogue partner, in this case a, a Jewish person, a, a religious person, um, someone who doesn't see any need for a crucified Messiah. And you, you can see this, this dialogue partner is still clinging to the hope of Jewish advantage. We talked about that a bit last week. You can see that question at the beginning of the verse, um, what then are we, meaning are we Jews any better off than the Gentiles? And, and 
you know, the, the reasoning is we belong to the chosen people of God. We have God's law. And somehow that's going to shield us from his judgment against human sin. And, and Paul, as you would expect, just answers, no way. <laughs> there, the, there's no advantage like that. Jews and Gentiles are in the same boat. And, and the boat that Paul describes here is a sinking boat. Um, all are under sin. Now, sin talk, you know, language like this, it doesn't go over well with most people. Um, if you want to get out of going to any uh, further dinner parties, neighborhood dinner parties, just at the next one, just talk to the guests about sin. Hey, let me tell you that you're a sinner. Did you know how sinful you are? Let me tell you, you'll never get invited back. You know, we... 21st century Americans don't use this kind of language any longer, um, for the most part at least. We've, we've removed sin from our vocabulary. Um, if you do hear sin talk in, in outside of this room, um, it likely doesn't mean something, it doesn't mean a moral transgression. It's something far less serious. Um, maybe indulging a, a harmless pleasure, having you know, two scoops of ice cream at dessert instead of one. Um, we're sophisticated modern people. We, we've moved on from, from that old-fashioned talk, from those, the, that Victorian-era uh, scrupulosity. We, we, we're enlightened. Uh, Fifty years ago, the psychiatrist uh, Carl Menninger, he wrote a book titled, Whatever Became of Sin?, and, and he saw 50 years ago, he saw where we're headed. Um, he saw we, we've replaced all the sin talk with therapeutic language. We, we don't talk about sin, we talk about disorders. We talk about um, maladaptive behavior. Um, biology and socialization completely explain human behavior. Morality doesn't come into the picture anymore. That, that's not a factor. Now, now, don't hear me saying that, that biology and, and childhood experiences are irrelevant. I mean, th- those things can shape us in profound ways. But, but here's the thing. If, if we jettison the sin language, we lose the ability to understand the human condition. And, and not just from a, an abstract theoretical um, point of view. We lose, the under, we lose the ability to understand ourselves. We lose the ability to understand why we are this way, why we have this vision of what we should be, but, but we just can't get there. We don't line up. We lose the ability to understand why the world is this way. And, and in reality, it cuts us off from God's solution in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It, it, if we jettison the sin language, uh, we're left hopeless. We might think we're, we're helping ourselves, but actually we're leaving ourselves hopeless if if the awful things I do, the things that I feel bad about, the things that hurt the people I love, if, if all of that's just explainable by my genetics, I mean, I, I'm doomed, right? There's nothing I can do about it. There's nothing that can be done until um, medical science figures out a fix, if they ever do. So the charge Paul brings here, all of us are under sin. We're, we're guilty before God because of our sin. And actually, though, I should add here, it's even worse than that. 
this is the first time Paul's used the word sin in the book of Romans. He's, he's given us plenty of examples of, of sins. He's used other words that refer to sin. But this is the first time he's used the word sin. And, and he's making a point here that not only do we commit sins, we are under the power of sin. We're under the, the tyranny of an evil master. You see, Paul can talk about sins, plural, and sin, singular. So sins, plural, um, you know, it's the things we've talked about in Romans, transgressions, wrongdoing. Sin, singular, is something much bigger. Something much more malevolent. And that's what Paul's talking about here in verse 9. We're under sin, meaning under the, the enslaving power of sin, under the authority of sin. Um, in Romans, and we'll see this more as we go along, Paul almost personifies sin as this, this evil ruler that enslaves human beings. Later, Paul even says, we are, we are slaves of sin before we came to Christ. He talks about sin exercising dominion over us before we were in Christ. And so the, the situation is, is maybe our situation, the predicament we find ourselves in, it, it's worse than maybe we've realized. Um, yes, we do bad things. And we will answer to God for them. But we do bad things because we're prisoners in a condition called sin. Dorothy Sayers uh, said, Sin is a deep interior dislocation at the very center of the human personality. We're not just talking about some mistakes here. We're talking about something deep inside us that is, that is wrong, that is corrupt. Uh, maybe an illustration will help here. Um, let me put it in, in medical terms. You know, sins, plural, are the presenting symptoms. You know, the, the cough or a fever, lower back pain. And, and symptoms are, are uncomfortable, right? They, they need to be treated. But the symptoms point to a, a bigger problem, right? The, the fever points to infection. The, the symptoms point to the underlying illness. Sin, singular, is that underlying illness. It's that disease that produces the symptoms. And, and Paul is saying, look, humanity is, is in bondage to sin. That's why all these things that he's described in chapters 1 and 2, that's why we see all that happening in the world, because we're under sin. And so realize that this charge that Paul brings, all are under sin, it means that the human problem, you know, I said at the beginning, the problem with the world is the problem of the human heart. The human problem is not simply a morality problem. If it was just about morality, the solution would be tell people to stop doing the bad things and tell them to start doing the, the good things. But that's not the problem. The problem goes deeper. It's, it's this slavery that we're born into. We're, we're captive to a power that, that we can't resist. It's, it's, it's inside us, and we can't change it. 
we need a power from outside ourselves to set us free, to break in and liberate us from this slavery. And, and we're not there in Paul's argument yet, but, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is that power. The gospel is about the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ, a, a Savior who sets slaves free. A Savior who liberates us from this uh, slavery to sin. And so, you know, hold on to that, that snippet of, of good news because um, Paul's not done with the trial yet. He's only brought the charges. Um, he's announced the charge. We're all under sin, under its power and dominion. Um, this is the problem with the world. This is the problem with, with you. This is the problem with me. And next... Second, the evidence. The evidence. It's one thing for Paul to level this charge, but he's got to prove his case. And so the evidence, verses 10, 10 to 18. Now, you know um, the prosecutor in a criminal trial puts the best witness on the stand. You know, the, the expert or the eyewitness, the person who was there, the person who can say, I saw everything that happened, the person that can point to the defendant and say, that's the person. They're the one who did it. Now, Paul knows this, and so he puts on the witness stand um, Holy Scripture. There, there's no, no more credible witness than God's own Word. No more accurate testimony than God's own against humanity. And so, in these verses, you probably um, heard as I as I read them, Paul's weaving together a, a series of Old Testament passages. Really, just a marvelous, marvelous collection of of passages from the Old Testament, and and each of these passages testifies against us, testifies to human sinfulness. And he quotes mainly from the Psalms, uh, but also uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, um, even Isaiah. And these Old Testament passages, they, they say three things about human sin. Uh, number one, sin is universal. Sin is universal. It affects the, the whole human race. No one is exempt. Notice the, the language Paul uses in verses 10 to 12. Um, very uh, absolute, comprehensive language. None is righteous. Not one, no one, no one, no one, not even one, all have turned aside. Um, Scripture could not be clearer. Um, Everyone is sinful. No one escapes from sin's corruption. No one, Paul says, is righteous before God. Not a single one. Now, maybe you find that hard to believe. There's 7 billion people alive today on this planet. Um, No one is righteous. Not one of those 7 billion plus people is righteous. And Paul's response, not one. Um, Some may appear to be more righteous than others, you know, just in in outward terms. But before God, no one is righteous. No one measures up. Now, Paul says, no one does good. And you you might think, well, I've I've seen people do some good things. I've tried to do some good things. How can Paul say, how can Scripture say, no one does good? Um, well, it depends on what your definition of good is, right? What, what's the measuring stick? What's, what's God's definition of good? 
there's a great um, Calvin and Hobbes piece about this. If, if you don't know Calvin and Hobbes, it's a comic strip. Um, Calvin's a little boy. Hobbes is his best friend, and Hobbes is a tiger. And in this particular uh, um, cartoon, they are flying down a snowy slope on a sled, and they're, they're having a conversation. Calvin and Hobbes are, are having a conversation. They're talking about sin. This little boy and his best friend, the tiger, talking about sin. And Calvin says to Hobbes, I'm getting nervous about Christmas. And Hobbes replies, you're worried? You haven't been good? Well, that's just the question. It's all relative. What's Santa's definition? How good do you have to be to qualify as good? I haven't killed anybody. That's good, right? I haven't committed any felonies. I didn't start any wars. Wouldn't you say that's pretty good? Wouldn't you say I should get lots of presents? And then, and then Hobbes replies with this amazing uh, bit of insight. But maybe good is more than the absence of bad. And then Calvin says, see, that's what worries me. <laughs> no one in slavery to sin does good as God defines it. See, even our most um, noble-looking deeds are, are tainted and corrupted by self-interest and selfishness and pride. No one does good before God. So sin is, is universal. Uh, sin is also pervasive. It's, it's, it's verses 13 to 17. Sin is pervasive. And here's what that means. Sin not only affects the whole of humanity, sin affects the whole person. Uh, sin corrupts every part of us. You notice in, in verses 13 to 17, Paul lists uh, a number of different body parts in, 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 these, in this imagery that he's using. Uh, the throat, the tongue, lips, mouth, feet. Verse 18, he mentions the eyes. Verse 11, he mentions the mind. Uh, you, we, we could say we are sinful from head to toe. Sin touches every part of who we are. When we say that humanity is under sin, we don't mean just one little part of them is, is messed up. Um, our minds are affected, our bodies, our desires, our plans, our perceptions, um, our words, we're going to talk about in a moment. Everything is, is tainted by the corruption of sin. Um, our words, verses 13 and 14, Paul says their, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is, is full of curses and, and bitterness. These, these very graphic pictures um, trying to uh, portray the, the ugliness of our sin and what it does to our words. Our, our speech reeks of, of death and deception and, and poison. Um, he also says that, our, that sin corrupts our actions, not just our words, but our actions. Verses 15 to 17, their, their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. You know, human beings are violent creatures. I mean, we are, are constantly inventing new ways to kill each other, to harm each other, to destroy each other. Um, already this year, there's been more mass shootings than days. Over 200 mass shootings, um, over or nearly 200 mass shootings, over 200 people killed, hundreds more wounded. Um, war, it's the norm in human history, right? One historian uh, determined that over the past 3,500 years or so of human history, 
there's only been 300, 300 days, less than 300 days, without war somewhere on this planet. Less than 300. Sin is universal. Sin is pervasive. And then third, sin is godless. Uh, verse 18. You see, sin is fundamentally theological. We, we can't understand sin apart from uh, God. Understanding sin in relation to God. Paul says there in verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the root of human sinfulness. The, the failure to really treat God as God. The failure to uh, fear God. Not so much in the sense of, of being terrified of Him, but honoring Him as God. Worshipping Him as the, the giver of life. The giver of all good things. Paul, earlier in chapter 1, said that humanity has turned away from the Creator and turn to idols, turn to the creature. This, this failure to treat God as God is at the root of our sinfulness. It's at the root of, of the problem with who we are. And, you know, sin is a part of a bigger story, the, the bigger biblical story that goes back all the way to creation. God, God created us to know Him, to love Him. He created us, He intended us to be wise stewards of His world, you know, reflecting His goodness and His kindness um, and His righteousness into the world. Uh, he intended for us to fill the world with glory and, and beauty and goodness, embodying His good rule over the creation. And we've rejected His rule. We've set up the self on the throne of our lives and we, we don't give devotion, our devotion and allegiance to the God who created us and made us for Himself. And so here Paul is saying sin is universal, it's pervasive, and it's godless. Each of us is implicated. You know, on the one hand, um, we're, we're human beings created in the image of God, just created for glory like we just talked about. Um, you know, human beings are amazing creatures. <laughs> uh, the most amazing creatures on this planet. So much promise, so much potential. And then on the other hand, we're broken images. We're, we're, we're bent and, and deformed and corrupted by sin. And, and realize, sin has not destroyed the image of God in us. It hasn't completely erased it, but it's done its best to deface the image of God. In us, and, and all of this, this description of, of human sinfulness and how pervasive it is and how each of us is implicated, uh, there's, a, there's an important implication here. And it, it's this sin is the great equalizer. Sin is the great equalizer. Sin puts us all on the same level. Now, that's not to say that all sins are the same, they're not, but every sin is wicked. Every sin is, we could say, cosmic treason and deserves God's just judgment. Sin puts us all in the same predicament. We're all in that, that boat, that sinking boat I, I mentioned earlier. We're in the grip of an evil power that resides inside us. You know, our tendency as, as sinful human beings is to put ourselves and, and maybe 
you know, maybe our friends and our family, we put ourselves in, in the good camp. And we put the people we don't like, the people who are different from us, the people from the other party, we put them in the bad camp. You know, they're, they're the evil ones, not us. And, and you know what that does when we, when we think in such simplistic terms like that? It gives us a license to hate. It, it gives us a license to dehumanize the people in the bad camp. Uh, we feel free to despise them. Uh, we feel free to blame others for all the, the problems in the world. And, and, and we separate ourselves from them lest we get contaminated. And we, we just huddle together in the, in the good camp. And we pat each other on the back for not being like the people in the bad camp. But the truth that Scripture's telling us here is, is much more complicated. Um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, a Russian author, he uh, was a public critic of Soviet-era Russia, and his criticisms of the, the communist Russian government uh, landed him in prison for many years under Stalin. And uh, he wrote this, The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. The line between good and evil runs through every human heart. Every one of us is, is that, that complex mixture of, of good and evil, the goodness of God's image and the evil of our sin that corrupts that image. I want you to hear this. Sin is universal, and that means we're no better than anyone else. I mean, we're sitting here in church on a Sunday. We're sitting here in our pews, singing you know, songs of praise, hearing Scripture read, praying together. We are not any better than anyone else. There's no place for us as the people of God to, to feel superior to, to the world out there. I mean, we of all people should get that, right? I mean, we of all people, we're, we're here worshiping and celebrating a Savior who died for our sins. I mean, we, we should get it. We are guilty. We were guilty. We deserve God's judgment. We needed His grace. You know, the, the doctrine of sin, it, it's, it's hard to consider. It's hard to talk about. But the doctrine of sin humbles us if we really understand it. It tells us that we are more like each other than different. Uh, it, it gives us compassion. We, we know what it was like to be slaves to sin. We know what it was like to be caught in the webs of, of evil. You know, the, the doctrine of sin keeps us from self-righteous judgment. Um, you know, as, as strange as it might sound, um, sin, the doctrine of sin can actually help us love others better. We, we know what the problem is. We, we share in the problem with them. So we've heard the charge. All are under sin. Uh, we've listened to the evidence. Scripture testifies against us that we're sinners. There's a question remaining. What's the verdict? What's the verdict? How does the judge rule? Well, we hear the verdict in verses 19 and 20. Um, guilty. That's the verdict. Guilty as charged. The whole world, Paul says, is guilty 
before God. He says in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Um, Just follow me for a moment. In chapter 1, Paul indicted the Gentiles as sinners. Here in chapter 3, he's used Scripture itself to indict the Jews, those who are under the law, those to whom the law spoke. The result being the whole world, Paul says. The whole world is guilty before God. And you see where that leaves us, verse 19. Every mouth is stopped. The whole world is held accountable to God. The, the stopped mouth, it's a picture from the ancient law courts. Uh, a defendant, when, when a defendant had nothing left to say in his own defense, he would put a hand over his mouth and stop speaking. It was just a, a sign. You know, it's kind of like saying, I, I rest my case. In some cases, the judge might think that the defendant's just blabbing on and he'd order someone else in the courtroom to strike the defendant's mouth to silence him. And that's the picture Paul's using here of us standing before the bar of God's judgment. I mean, we have no excuse, no, no defense, um, no counter evidence to uh, provide. We, we're standing there in silence. The silence of, of our own guilt. Um, accountable is, isn't the best translation of the word Paul uses there. The whole world is held accountable before God. Uh, the, the, a better translation is held guilty. The whole, wor- the whole world is silenced, no defense, and held guilty before God. And so this is our predicament um, apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. This is, this is us. Uh, We're slaves to sin. Our our lives show it. God's Word confirms it. And it pronounces us guilty and condemned before a holy God. And and maybe, you know, as we're watching this courtroom drama, maybe we hear one of the defendants kind of in the background say to herself, "But, but I try to obey God. I mean, I have His Word. It tells me how to live. I, I try my best. I mean, nobody's perfect, but, but it's got to count for something, right? I, I try. And Paul's answer, verse 20, the law justifies no one. It only exposes sin. He says there, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law justifies no one. That, that word justify, very important word. We're going to hear it again and again in the book of Romans. It's a legal term, meaning uh, to make right or to declare to be in the right. To declare, in other words, to declare someone innocent. Paul says you can't be justified by works of the law. In other words, no amount of moral effort is going to make you right before God. No amount of moral effort is going to change the verdict. And the reason being, the law cannot change your heart. The law cannot liberate you from slavery. Remember I said the human problem is not just a morality problem. You know, we we didn't know what we should do, and we just need to be told what we ought to do. No, we're, we're in slavery to sin, and the law can't set us free from the dominion of sin. It wasn't designed to do that. And this is a mistake religious people make so often. You know, we, we think, well, we have God's Word. I love God's Word. I pay attention to God's Word. I read it. It gives me wisdom. It shows me how to live. And if I just do my best, it's probably all going to work out okay in the end. 
you know, gold star for effort or something. Listen, it's not going to work out okay. It's impossible. It can't. The law does not justify, Paul says. It exposes. The, the law is like a mirror. Let, uh, let, me, um, let me give you an illustration. Um, the, summer be, the summer before I started high school, I went on a backpacking trip with a group from school, and we spent about 12 days um, backpacking from Glacier Point in Yosemite to Mammoth Lakes. It was between 60, 70 miles. And that time of year in the Sierras, you know, it's hot, it's dry, the trails are, are dusty, there's no showers in the wilderness. Um, each evening at camp, I did my best to try to, you know, clean up. We, I would go swimming, maybe splash some water on my face. And, and I thought I was doing a pretty good job. And then um, day 11, uh, we make it to Mammoth Lakes, and finally we get to stay at a, a real campsite near town, you know, one that has restrooms and showers. Uh, there was a McDonald's nearby. So um, I, I head over to the bathrooms to clean up, and uh, stand in front of a mirror. And this is the first time I've, I've seen my face in, in over a week. This is before, you know, um, selfie cameras on cell phones. Um, this is before cell phones, or before I had a cell phone. <laughs> um, I stood in front of that mirror, and I learned something. I had failed miserably. My face was filthy. I mean, it, it looked like I had just been taking handfuls of dirt and, and smearing them all over my face. And, you know, I was under the impression that I had done a pretty good job of staying clean until I looked in the mirror. And God's law is like that mirror. It can show you how dirty your face is. It can give you a very clear picture of what the truth is about yourself, but it can't do anything to change it. I mean, I could have ripped that mirror off the wall and rubbed it all over my face. Wouldn't have changed anything. God's law exposes sin, but it can't rectify it. It can't justify. It can't change the heart. And so, we've been charged here in Romans 3. All are under sin. And the evidence is irrefutable. I mean, how can you argue with God's Word? And God has pronounced the verdict, guilty in His sight. I mean, this is a hard message to receive. But it's true. And we so desperately need someone to tell us the truth. You know, most of us, uh, live with a, a nagging sense of, of guilt or shame. You know, just this, this feeling that, that we don't measure up, that we aren't good enough. Um, yeah, we've removed sin from our vocabulary, but we can't shake that, that twinge of guilt that we feel. I mean, we try, right? We, we try to stuff those feelings of guilt down, um, ignore it, deny it, pretend it's not there. We're like the little girl who says, you know, I've closed my eyes so nobody can see me. And, and here's the Bible saying, I see you. And it says to us, you're actually worse than you realize. Uh, you think it's just a few mistakes, you know, a handful of bad choices, but deep down you're a good person. And the Bible says, actually, deep down there's something seriously wrong. 
deep down is, is ugly, twisted, bent. You're, you're a prisoner to evil desires. You're a slave to sin's corruption, and, and you can't change yourself. Not deep down. I mean, you could, you could clean up the outside maybe, but deep down you can't change yourself. And, and the Bible says God sees. God, God knows what's on the inside, and, and he's not fooled. I mean, that is a, that's a hard message. But, but look, coming to grips with your sinfulness before God is, is a miserable experience. There's, there's no way around that. It's an awful, terrible experience. Um, you ever have one of those dreams? Um, you know, you show up to a job, job interview or, or to work, um, and you forgot. You're just in your underwear. Forgot to get dressed that day. I mean, this, what, what Paul's describing here is even worse than, um, than that. It's like forgetting even the underwear. Uh, no more hiding, uh, no more pretending, just, you know, the ugly truth about myself. You know, it's such a miserable experience, and some of you have been there. You, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Miserable experience, but it's so necessary. So necessary. It's actually a gift uh, if, you, if you can stay with me for a moment, it's actually a gift. Seeing the truth, the ugly truth about yourself in God's sight is a gift. Uh, Flannery O'Connor called these kinds of moments um, severe mercies. It's painful, but it's good. Um, when you open your eyes finally and you stop pretending, and when you say, you know what, God, you're, you're right, I'm worse than I realize. Everything you've said about me is true. I have no excuse and, and I can't do anything to change myself. Then you're ready to hear verse 21. The verse we're not covering this week, but I have to bring it in. <laughs> then you're ready to hear verse 21. Guilty in God's sight, but now. But now the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law, the saving righteousness of God. It's like God says to us, okay, now you're ready. This isn't the end of your story. You see, friends, uh, Romans 3 is just part of the story here. We're going to keep going next week. Your guilt is not the end of the story. God's grace is the rest of the story. Uh, This is the amazing thing about the Gospel. The, The God... We rebelled against this, this God who, who is the just judge and pronounces us guilty in his sight. That same God is determined to rescue his creatures. That same God is, is unwaveringly committed to rescuing sinful, rebellious, guilty creatures. I mean, he, he, Paul's going to tell us about this, but he, he did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He, he sends his son to rescue, to, to bear our sins at the cross, to deal with that guilt, to take away the sin, and, and not just to deal with the guilt, but to, to liberate us from captivity. He sets us free. Romans is going to tell us that through faith in Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin. We are now servants of the risen King. The Gospel is the good news about forgiveness and liberation 
through Jesus Christ. And if you're in Christ, um, guilt is really just the preface to your story. That, that little bit at the beginning of the book that we, we tend to pass over and try to jump into the, the meat of the book, it's just the preface to your story, the before Christ part of your story. The, the in Christ story fills the remainder of the book. It's just page after page of grace uh, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And, and if you don't know Christ, guilt and condemnation doesn't have to be the final chapter in your story. Uh, there's grace in Jesus Christ. There's forgiveness. There is freedom. There is new life. And it, it's just through faith in Jesus Christ. Put your trust in Him. I'll, I'll end with this. You and I, what Romans is telling us, you and I are more sinful than we realize. The picture is just so much more ugly than, than we would have thought. But God is more gracious than we could have imagined. His grace overflows toward us in Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, um, as we stand before you, Lord, we know that in ourselves... We're guilty, we're dirty, but we know that through Christ you have made us clean. You have clothed us in robes of righteousness. You've welcomed us into your family. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to, to really hold together these two truths about our sinfulness and the, the generous nature of your grace. Would you help us to be a humble people, a joyful people? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.